0: I thank you for our brother Jason. I thank you for his wife Kim and for their uh, four daughters. I would pray that even though he's preaching, speaking this weekend, that uh, this trip here to Okinawa would be uh, life-giving for them and be refreshing. They'd have meaningful time together, um, that there'd be uh, just restoration in their soul, just that they'd know rest in you, Jesus, and and physical rest as well. Father, I thank you for uh, what you have given to Jason from your word and what he's going to rehearse with us. It's it's so good for us to hear. And Holy Spirit, we pray just as you have brought us to life and you sustain our life, that once again this morning we would know your presence as you open our ears and you incline our hearts to hear the gospel, as you point us to Jesus, the real hero of our family, and you point us to our Father who has adopted us in through Jesus. Pray that you would bring our hearts to life, give us joy, give us peace in the gospel, increase our confidence in Jesus. Um, I pray that you do these things for us uh, by your grace and for your glory, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.
1: I've had two Chinese friends disappear uh, over the last couple years. Uh, The first uh, friend who who disappeared was a few years ago. Uh, He was studying to become a doctor, and so he was was in grad school uh, pretty much at the top of his class. And was almost finished with his, uh, with his studies and, and was uh, preparing to be a doctor. His family, as you can imagine, in China was very excited about this. This was uh, uh, bring honor to their family as well as finances for them as their social security, uh, that, that their son would then take care of them as a, as a doctor as they uh, grew older in life. And so it was to their extreme shock whenever he told them that he wanted to, to leave med school just before he was finished to become a pastor. I was shocked as well. I tried to talk him out of it. Uh, I, I often find myself trying to talk more people out of going into full-time occupational ministry than I do talking people in, and, and, but, but he, he, you couldn't shake it. He, he said, man, this is the Lord has laid this on my heart. I didn't plan for this. I didn't ask for this. But God has made it clear to me through a number of different, different things that, that he uh, would have me uh, leave uh, uh, the medical profession and become a full-time occupational uh, pastor and so whenever he had made that decision, we were shocked, but, but uh, that was nothing compared to the shock of his family. And so when his mom and dad heard about it, they live in a town about 40, 50 minutes away um, from where we live in, in uh, Shanghai, China, a little village of a couple million people. Um, in Shanghai, we have 25 million people. Uh, and so they, uh, they hear about this, and they call him, and they try to shame him over the phone, and... And then tell him I shouldn't. Should when that didn't work, his mom literally showed up at his apartment. Uh, two of my good friends were roommates with him as well at the time, and they said that that his mom parked herself there and wailed from sun up to sundown for three straight days. So, like professional mourner type wailing. Three days of just straight just moaning and yelling and screaming. Neighbors were calling the cops. I mean it was just everybody was trying to get her to stop. She wouldn't stop Uh, and the message was clear. If you want this to end you'll give up on all this pastor stuff and Christianity stuff and you'll go back to being a doctor. Well, he, 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 he didn't. Uh, he, he continued, and his mom saw that, that he wasn't going to, to relent through that. And so she uh, said, okay, well, I'm going to go back to our hometown, but it, it's your duty as my son to, uh, to take me to the train station. He said, all right, mom, I'll, I'll take you to the train station. So he takes her to the train station. Uh, once at the train station, she said, well, it's your duty as my son to, to accompany me back to, to our home. He okay, mama, I'll take you home. So he gets a train ticket for himself as well. Uh, they make it back to, uh, to his home, uh, their hometown, uh, where they proceeded to, to lock him in their house, took away his ID, cell phone, computer. You can't travel anywhere, even if you're a, a local um, in China without your ID. Um, took away all of that and hired a thug to live with him 24-7 um, to guard him. Uh, he got 15 minutes of, of time in the yard every day uh, to walk around the block, exercise his legs. He got 15 minutes to go outside while the thug was with him uh, to guard him. And, uh, and, and we, would, we, would, we were getting, because he disappeared, nobody knew where he was, and we started to get these little cryptic messages uh, uh, through social media from him uh, until finally one day, I guess, he was able to, to, to get a device long enough to shoot an email to another elder at our church saying, I need you to be at this location at this time on this day, with a car ready to go. So that's all we got. So, my friend went and had a car sitting at that intersection on that day, engine running, uh, waiting, and, and didn't know exactly what was gonna happen until he looked up in the rearview mirror and saw my friend just running down the street. Uh, he used his 15 minutes of exercise that day to sprint away from the guard uh, that his mother had hired to, to keep him hostage until he renounced Christianity. He hopped in the car. They took off, uh, and now he uh, he's now in, in the United States uh, at a seminary, uh, preparing uh, to still in preparation to be a pastor. Second friend uh, that disappeared uh, is is uh, uh, has been more of a longstanding thing. Two Augusts ago, he was actually a member of our church, uh, who is a, a, a ethnically a member of a very persecuted uh, people group in China, maybe one of the more persecuted people groups in the world. And he was called to go back to his hometown uh, where he uh, disappeared. And we've since found out that he is in a, a re education facility. He's been there for about two years now. We still keep him on our membership rolls. Uh, uh, we just have an, a brief, uh, kind of a, a code name for him in our membership uh, directory. Uh, and we still have him. Uh, we've been praying for him for two years. He's still there as we speak today. Um, and we continue to, to, to pray for this brother. Uh, he actually dates his conversion. ...to when he was being beaten by police. Uh, He was a university student and some people had shared the gospel with him uh, and, and given him a Bible... And he had a Bible, and he had read through uh, uh, you know, uh, one or two of the Gospels at the beginning of the, the New Testament. And so he read how God, in his great love for us, gave his son, sent his son to, to be born uh, uh, into this world and to, to, to live a perfect life and, and then to, to be brutally uh, crucified, just as bloody death in our place for our sin uh, as our substitute That by, for any of us who repent and trust in him might have eternal life. He, he reads this this gospel uh, in uh, uh, the, the story of Jesus' life and still doesn't believe it, but, but it's in the back of his mind. And so when he was arrested or brought in for questioning uh, and the police didn't like uh, the, the information they were getting from him, they started to beat him. And he says, as the, as the blows were falling, as he was being beaten by the police, his mind went to Jesus. And he said, this is what he took for me, and and much more cruel, much more horrible, much more unjust, that the sins of the world would rest on him, because he loved me, and he was converted. He said, what what a savior who would go through this for all of humanity, and this brother was converted. Pillar Church, uh, will you ever have to face something like that? Uh, if, if you're honest, and, and, and I've put myself in one of these seats, I would say probably not. <laughs> maybe, maybe that might be what the Lord has for you uh, at some point in your life, but, but, but I don't think that that is an immediate threat in my life, and you might not th- think that is a, an immediate threat in your life, and, and I don't blame you for thinking that. But if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to know that you have far more in common with persecuted brothers and sisters like that than you think you do. You have far more in common with persecuted brothers and sisters right now and throughout church history than what you think you do. And it is because of that, because we have this commonality that I think it is vital that when we see passages of Scripture that talk about oppression, that talk about persecution, that talk about trials and suffering, when we see these things, we do well to pay attention because we have more in common with those people than we think we do. That's what I want to look at this morning, our commonality with those who are persecuted and opposed. And it's this, identification with Jesus brings persecution and provision. Uh, that, that's kind of our, our big idea this morning. Identification with Jesus brings persecution and provision. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 33 this morning. So if you have a, a copy of God's word, I invite you to, to turn there, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 23. As we do, I really I want to I ask and answer three questions this morning. So, if you're taking notes, I told the first service your memory is what you forget with. So, if you're taking notes, uh, as I encourage you to do, asking and answering three questions. Number one, what does persecution look like? Number two, why is there persecution? Number three, what should we do in the face of persecution? So Matthew, 6, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 33, what does persecution look like? Why is there persecution? And what should we do in the face of persecution? I'll read our text in its entirety. You can follow along, Matthew 10, 16 to 33. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will, will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called, you, if, if they have called the master of the house beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light what, you're, what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Question number one, what does persecution look like? Just to, to locate us where we are in the, the book of Matthew, if it's been a while since you've uh, studied or, or read uh, this book of the Bible, uh, Matthew seems to have structured his gospel around five speeches of Jesus or five discourses of Jesus. Jesus. And so what he'll do is he'll cover, a, he'll give a speech of Jesus, and then he'll cover a piece of narrative. And so you have, you have speech and story, speech and story, speech and story. And so, as you can remember from the beginning of Matthew, you have the, 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 the genealogy of Jesus, the, the birth of Jesus, you have the story of his early life leading up in Matthew chapter 4, his uh, temptation in the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit. So you have the story, the narrative is advancing. And then he stops for a speech or a discourse. That's Matthew chapter 5 to 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Well, then it jumps back into part of the the narrative. It jumps back into the story, Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 9. That is is Jesus' miraculous ministry. And so you see his his great power, and he's healing diseases, and he's casting out demons, and you see this uh, authoritative, uh, miraculous uh, ministry of Jesus. And then he stops in Matthew chapter 10 for another speech. There's another discourse, and this is what we have in Matthew 10, where we are this morning, is the second discourse in the book of Matthew. This time, it's not the Sermon on the Mount that he's given. It's him speaking to his disciples to prepare them for the ministry that he's sending them out into. So he calls his disciples at the beginning of the chapter and kind of names them, calls them, and he's sending them out. Uh, And then here in the second half of the the chapter specifically, uh, the second half, we we see him. he's, He's letting them know that as he's sending them out in the ministry, He's giving them this kind of pep talk. He's, he's, he's uh, uh, calling them together to the, this briefing before they go out into their ministry. He's specifically letting them know, guys, it is not going to be easy. Everything that, that, I, that is in front of you in the ministry that, that I've given for you is not always going to go your way. They are going to face pushback, even violent, aggressive pushback. And so you see that in verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. The disciples, they are identified with Christ, and they are going out sharing a not always popular message of the kingship of Jesus, telling people that they should repent from, turn from, whatever they're trusting in, whatever they're worshiping. Uh, whatever they're engaging in, that they, that they should turn from these things and that they should then turn to Jesus. Trust in him, worship him, love him, submit to him as the great source of meaning and pleasure and hope in their lives. And he says, when you do that, when, when that's your message, turn from these things and, and then trust in this, trust in Jesus. When, when you do that, there are going to be people who disagree. There are going to be people who push back. There are going to be people who want to silence that message. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. And so in verse 17, Jesus tells them what they'll face. Look, look at verse 17 and 18 again. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to their courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles." So he says you'll be delivered over, you'll be arrested uh, to courts. These, these have been the, the Jewish, local Jewish courts, the Sanhedrin. They will be put before those courts. And then, and then he says that, that they will be dragged before governors and kings. The words that are used there are just identifying these both uh, Jewish rulers and Gentile rulers. They're going to be dragged before both Jews and Gentile authorities. He says you'll be flogged in the synagogues. They'll literally be whipped and, and uh, receive physical punishment and physical torture for what it is that they are believing and preaching. This is, this is what persecution is. These interrogations and arrests and physical harm that is coming their way. In my city, uh, where we live over the last five months, there, there have been seven churches uh, that, that I know of where I'm good friends with the pastor's. Uh, That have been raided on most of them on Sunday mornings, uh, while the worship service is going on, so that more people can be gathered and more intelligence can be can be gathered from from the people who are there. Uh, And this is anyway, if you if you've ever been in China or lived in China or or know people that that have been there, this is this is kind of par for the course in a sense. You always hear, yeah, persecution. It's that's just that's been around for a long time. But people that have lived there for a while, I'm talking twenty plus years, everybody's saying it it feels different now. There, there's a different feel to the way things are happening now that, that feels different from anything that, that we've experienced in our several decades of, of being there. And, and so I, I've, I've heard, even as long as I've been there, I first started going to China in 2002, lived there for a couple years, 03 to 05, and now we've been there as a family for five and a half uh, years. And, and and over that time, I always hear of things. Maybe there's something going on over in this city that we hear about, or kind of in the northern part of our city. We heard of some churches that were shut down one morning, but over the last five or six months, it, it's been my, it's been good friends of mine. SWAT-type vehicles pull up outside the service, kind of a show of force. Maybe 20, 30 officers come in. Facial recognition technology is employed where uh, an officer will walk the aisles and let his uh, device grab the face of everybody there. Uh, And and one of my good friends, it's actually a church that we planted uh, about a year and a half after we started on the western side of the city. This was going on during their service and the the police officer was walking the aisles and eventually says, ah, Joshita, which is, oh, oh, it's him. The facial recognition grabbed a guy that they were looking for, you, come with me. And they take this guy away for, for, for questioning. And so this, this is happening. This is a, a reality. My church has had to put some protocol in place. So we, At our members' meetings, uh, we've had to devote part of our members' meetings to say, okay, guys, what happens if, if we're told midweek that we can't meet on Sunday? What happens if we hear Sunday morning that we're not going to be able to meet that morning? What happens if they come in mid-service? Who, who are the point people? What do we say? What's our message? What are, so we've had to put little white papers together and, and protocol in place for the eventuality that this will happen in our church. I go up into the pulpit every Sunday with my normal kind of 45-minute sermon and then a five-minute just bullet <laughs> that if, I, if, if, if it happens and our deaconess of facilities comes and taps me and says, hey, you got five minutes, that's my message that I'm giving so that the authorities can hear, so that our church can hear, and just to prepare for persecution. So this, this is reality. Uh, where we live, it's reality in many Parts of the world, But, you know, it's not just police who have certain intel who are coming and doing this. It's also family members. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, you see this here that Jesus is preparing them. Verse 21 says, "'Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his, the father, his child, and children will rise against their parents to have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake.'" I can't count the number of times, the percentage of persecution that I've heard about in my city, it's usually family members ratting out other family members, parents ratting out their kids, or becoming a doctor instead, or becoming a pastor instead of a a doctor, and so on and so forth. So when verse 22 says, you will be hated by all, it means all kinds of people, right? Not, Not all people without exception, or there would be no converts, now, Jesus didn't say you're going to be hated by all people without exception, but he's saying you will be hated by all people without distinction, right? Friend and enemy, stranger and family member, Jew and Gentile, you will be, you will be opposed by any and all kinds of people. And this is exactly what happens, right, as we continue to read the New Testament. I mean, Hebrews 11 gives a list of biblical heroes, and then and the author says, I don't, I don't have enough time to talk about all the great examples we have. Hebrews 11.35, some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, and they were killed with the sword, people of whom the world was not worthy. So we see that from the Old Testament all the way up into the New Testament, this witness of what Jesus is preparing his disciples for here is actually what is happening and what he is uh, preparing them for because it is indeed what will take place. Now listen, I know that that is not what persecution looks like for many of us in this room, myself included right now. I'm, I'm not necessarily afraid of that Hebrews 11 type thing right now in my ministry. In fact, my church, for whatever reason, hasn't been visited by the police. We're, we're waiting. We're expecting it any given Sunday and prepared for it, but, but, but it hasn't happened. And so I know this doesn't look like it. One day it will, maybe for some of us, but, but right now it doesn't. And so there are other ways that we face persecution. Right? There are other ways that, that we all face persecution. And so it's easy when we start talking about persecution to, to, to consider the audience, consider the church, the congregation, and say, well, it's talking about persecution, but let, let's think about how we're going to face persecution. And, and that's good, and that's right, and, and we'll do that in a few minutes, but I think it would be a mistake to, in the name of application, run too quickly to how you and I are going to face persecution and not just stop and... and, and, and sit and look at what is going on, what he's preparing the church for here and what is going on in the world around us, considering people who have given their lives and are given their very lives, even gruesomely, for Christ. Many today will give their lives. Many more will give up comforts, and it should make us prayerful knowing that Christians will face these same threats today. And so before we run to, pers- uh, to, to, to application for us, just, let's just pause and, and pray for strength and boldness, and God's will to be done in and through this. Again, not, not always praying that persecution will cease, because sometimes that's, the Lord, that's what the Lord has for his church. But, so not just to pray for it to end, but to pray that, that the church would be bold in the midst of it, that the church would bear up under it, that, that Christ would be sufficient and would sustain his people through it. Let's pray for these things. I do think we need to point out as well that that you only, as we're talking about what persecution is, you only get to this level of persecution when when you face antagonism that meets a truth worth dying for. Antagonism that meets a truth. For especially if you're here this morning as a and you're not a Christian, I just want you to see this about what uh, what happens to these disciples of Christ and what Jesus is preparing his church for. It is antagonism that meets a truth worth dying for. Now you might you might stop me there and say, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Every religion has fanatics that are willing to die for what they believe in. Right? Every religion has people who are willing to to give their lives for what they believe. That doesn't make the religion true. Surely that's correct." but here's the difference. Here's where early Christianity is different than all of those other examples and what makes early Christianity entirely unique. These first uh, martyrs, these first people who gave their lives were eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They, They saw Jesus die. They saw him put in the tomb. He was dead, and then he wasn't, And he rose again from the grave. They saw that. He appeared to his disciples, and then he appeared to to hundreds of others. And this led all of them at the time to say, He really is God. What he said really is true. Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. This is absolutely true. He is raised from the dead. And this is why we call this the, the, the gospel, the good news of, of Christianity is that our sin calls a, a rift between us and God and, and, and to pay the penalty of, of death that we all deserve, Christ died in our place as our substitute, taking our punishment on himself that any of us who, who would repent and trust in him would have life. And the disciples heard that message from Jesus. They they are now confirmed that this is true, that he wasn't just a good teacher. He died and he rose from the grave. And, and so then, then what happened is they just started telling everybody about it. This really is true. He really is God. And the authorities come and say, listen, hold on, hold on, that's enough of that Jesus stuff. If you don't stop, you're going to jail. And they say, Well, you're gonna have to put me in jail then. I saw a guy die and rise again. You're gonna to have to put me in jail. And they say, okay, sword unsheathed, if you don't stop, we're going to kill you. We will literally saw you in half. And they say, you're going to have to saw me in half. Because I saw a guy die and then rise again from the grave. This isn't just religious fanaticism that's given itself to a cause or to an ideology. This is based on a person who died and rose again from the grave. Jesus really is God. And they saw that, and you say, kill us if you want, but this is exactly what happened. Now, can you put yourself there for a moment? And let's imagine, let's imagine we don't have the information that we have in the Gospels of, of the story of what actually happened to Jesus. And let's imagine that you were one of those early disciples and you saw him die and he went into the tomb. You actually didn't see him rise again from the grave. But, man, I don't want the last three years to go to waste. We had a good time with Jesus. Let's say he rose again from the grave And that's going to be our message, and we'll kind of keep the good times rolling. We'll keep this thing going. And let's say that that was your stance. You really didn't see it, but you're kind of making up this religion and going along with it. And you liked him, and you were just you were just doing that. Now the Romans come and they say, "Listen, we're not playing around. You stop talking about Jesus, sword, or you die." What would you do? You do the same thing I would do. I'd be like, "No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Didn't see anything." I saw him die. He never came out of the grave. We're just messing around. Put the sword away, please. You would do the same thing that I would do. If it wasn't true, if Jesus really wasn't who he said he was, you would say it it didn't happen, never saw it. But it was true, and it did happen. Christian persecution happens when antagonism meets a truth worth dying for, and that truth worth dying for is, listen, my Savior, he really died and rose again from the grave, Now, I think we're ready to consider our own pressures, our own trials, our own persecutions. Now we're ready to consider that because that comes from the very same place for us. So when a teacher or a professor says, listen, if you don't leave Christianity at the door, then you won't do well here. You say, I guess I won't do well here then because he died and rose again. When an employer implies that you need to abandon your Christian morality or your Christian ethics or your Christian witness if you want to keep your job or advance in it, you so say, I guess, guess I'm not going to advance in my job then. I guess I'm going, you're going to have to fire me because this guy died and rose again. This really is true. When a parent or a friend group or a, a culture says, if you don't renounce your Christianity, you're not one of us. Or a more subtle version of the same thing. You say, well, <laughs> I guess my identity's elsewhere then, and I'm not one of you. Because Jesus Christ really died and rose again from the grave. He really is the way, the truth, and the life. It is a message worth dying for, and that's what meets that antagonism. I once asked a prominent Chinese pastor in my city how he feels persecution most frequently. And his response was something that you might not expect. I didn't expect it. He thought for a minute and he says, The way we face persecution most frequently is in a reluctance to do what is right. He said, Let me give you an example. And this was at the time of this conversation. He says, Right now, there's, there's a girl in our congregation, a member of our church, who is engaged in ongoing immorality with her boyfriend. Uh, I've called her to repent. Um, She's pushed that away. Other brothers and sisters from our church have gone to her and pleaded with her to turn uh, from, from this immorality in her life and turn back to the Lord, and she's refused. It's Matthew 18, right? This is, they're, they're going through the steps of Matthew 18. And, so, and, and we're, we're pleading with her, and she's not going to repent. Here's the catch. The guy is a police officer. What do you do? If... The Bible would say the most loving thing that you can do for this sister, or for this girl, after she's, uh, you've, uh, she's refused your, your, uh, your one-on-one approach, your, your approach is to take, tell it to the church. And then uh, in love, remove her from the fellowship of the church if she still doesn't repent as an act of church discipline in hopes that you would save her soul. That's what the Bible would tell you to do. What do you do if her husband, or if the, if the boyfriend is a police officer? Now, Do you you just say, "Ah, maybe the Bible doesn't really say what it says here. Let's redefine some stuff. Maybe immorality really isn't that big of a deal. Let's redefine what repentance looks like. Let's act like we don't even see it. Or do you say, listen, God has said, and we can do no other. Here we stand, and we're going to do this. And fortunately, this church did um, stand on that, and we're yet to, to see if that will end up bringing anything their way. But, but this is how we face persecution. Maybe that makes this a little more tangible. Maybe that, this idea of persecution as reluctance to do what is right, reluctance to have that hard conversation, reluctance to call that friend out, reluctance to, to really stand. Maybe that's how more common of how we might feel it today. Maybe it strikes more of a chord with you. If I do what's right and I follow the truth, there will be consequences. It might not lead to physical harm, but this, too, is pressure of persecution, and, and this pressure, pressure point comes from the exact same place as the pressure point from somebody getting sawn in half. It's Christ really is God. He really is the way. How can I renounce him? How can I renounce what is really true in order to gain some comparatively small temporal benefit? I can't. Question number two, why is there persecution? That's what is persecution. Secondly, why is there persecution? Look at the beginning of our passage again, verse 16. I am sending you out. I am sending you out. First, our first answer to that question is that there's persecution because Jesus sends his people into it. Now listen, this isn't some elite Okinawan-based military force. Well, How does he describe them? Sheep. These are slow, dumb, uh, uh, no, not there, no claws, no teeth. They they can't defend themselves. These are sheep, and so Jesus has a group of those, and he's sending them out into a pack of wolves, ravenous, bloodthirsty, fast, cunning, teeth and claws. And he's sending his sheep into that. Now, why would he do that? Why would the text say that Jesus is sending them into this situation? Because it's an opportunity. That's what it says. Look at verse 18. You will be delivered over, whipped, flogged, dragged before authorities to. Do you see that word to? In order to, so that you may bear witness to those persecutors. Isn't that amazing? We're so lucky that Jesus includes this line because otherwise we might see persecution is running against what he's done in the first half of Matthew 10. First half of Matthew 10, he's sending them out to preach the gospel. And we might say, well, listen, Jesus, what's going on? You sent me out to preach the gospel, but now there's pushback. What gives? Like John the Baptist in prison. Go ask Jesus, is he really who he says he is? Because I'm in jail right now. I don't know if you guys noticed. And so Jesus includes this line so that when there's pushback, so that when there's persecution, we don't conclude that, that God has something, that, that he's not in what we're doing. And so we're so lucky that, and fortunate that he, he conclu- includes this because he's not, rather than persecution being, being showing that God's not in this, he's showing them that in his sovereignty, he is actually furthering the mission through persecution. That's what he says, This is what Paul says in Philippians 1 as well. Remember Philippians 1? Ironically, a church planted in part. Part of the core team of that church plant was a soldier who was converted because Paul and his buddies stayed in jail and shared the gospel with him. And then Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi, and he is in prison, and he writes this letter, and he doesn't say, I can't believe God did this to me. I was supposed to be this this apostle. How did God do this to me? I'm writing a letter, get me out now. Just help, scrawled in big, kind of chaotic letters on it. He doesn't say that. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, verse 18. He's sending them into this so that the message m- m- would go forward. Pillar Church, just let me ask you, do you view your pressures, any persecutions that you face, any pushback to your faith, do you view them in this light? It's an opportunity to proclaim Jesus is better. Jesus is better than fill in the blank. Jesus is better than money, Jesus is better than popularity, Jesus is better than approval, Jesus is better than advancement, Jesus is better than mere earthly acceptance, Jesus is better. When we receive pushback to our faith, Jesus says, guys, don't miss it, don't miss it. It's an opportunity to show that I'm better than all that stuff. Don't miss the opportunity. So why is there persecution? Well, one, sent by Jesus into persecution to advance the message. We've seen this in in our own church and in our own city. Uh, The church that we planted about a year and a half in was one of those churches that got raided this past May. And over the summer, they broke into four groups uh, where it had an elder over each group to kind of lay low a little bit over the summer. And now they've emerged as two churches right now. So joke's on you, Satan. (laughs) You persecute the church, it's going to pop back up and multiply. That's exactly what's happened. Now there's another church in our network of churches in our city because persecution has brought that. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the way it works. It's furthering the message. It's advancing that. Not to mention, I can't tell you how many police officers this past May had the gospel shared with them. I mean, that, that, we've told that to our congregation. More interrogations mean more gospel presentations. We've told that we've preached that. The more, if they bring you in for a repeat interview, another gospel presentation. More interrogations is more gospel presentations. So the first reason is Jesus sends them into that. But secondly, okay, that's one reason why there's persecution. But there's a second one that we ought not miss, and it's maybe a little bit more obvious in the text, is that it's inevitable. It's the natural result of following Jesus. Persecution is the natural result of following Jesus. Look at verses 24 and 25. You scan those verses, you'll see that Jesus is saying that if they persecute him, which they will, then of course they'll persecute his followers. If they call him Beelzebul, understand that as a reference to Satan, they'll feel the same way about those who follow Jesus. I think it's important here to, to, for me to do a little pastoral work from a couple of different angles. Here's the first angle that I think we need to see, it is, it is, is that what is implied in this is that persecution is inevitable only if you openly identify with Jesus. So I think that's implied here. Percy, per- So per- he says, if they persecuted me, of course they're going to persecute you. If they hated you, of course they'll hate me. But I think he has in mind here only if, for those who openly identify with Jesus. Jesus doesn't have in mind here nominal Christianity, Christian in name only. Now listen, I know I, I, I was raised. Uh, going to church off and on, I wasn't a Christian. I would have told you I was a Christian for most of my life. I became a Christian when I was 18. But if you would have asked me in those first 18 years, are you a Christian? I would have said, yes. If you would have said, why? I would have said, I don't know. Actually, I would probably made up something better than that, but equally as intelligent. I, I don't know. And, and my reason, if I were honest with myself, looking back, I would have said, well, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not an atheist. I think there's a God. So what else is there? I'm an American. We're Christians. It's not true. Uh, but that, that, was, that was my thing. That was my answer. Uh, and, and I had nothing. It was Christian by process of elimination. I wasn't any of the other options. And I went to church sometimes. Listen, that brings no persecution. Jesus does not have in mind here nominal Christianity. He also doesn't have in mind here private Christianity. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but don't you dare ask me about it. That's religion's a private thing. I'm going to hold that over here. I'm going to do my own thing. You can't poke your head into it. You can't look into it. Uh, I just kind of keep this. It's not anyone else's business. And I'm not, and, and, but I think if I'm nice enough, people will know I'm a Christian. So I'm not actually going to talk about it, but they'll see that I'm nice and I smile and I hold the door for them sometimes. they will be like, oh, Jesus must have died and rose from the grave. Like that guy, that, it doesn't happen that way. Jesus doesn't have in mind here private Christianity. It doesn't bring persecution. Jesus doesn't have in mind here uh, kind of a postmodern, liberal, pluralistic Christianity. That truth is relative. It's just one option among world religions. It's really not too different from what other people believe. All religions are kind of different paths to the same God. Jesus is just one option among the world religions. Jesus can't be assuming any of those things—nominal Christianity, private Christianity, liberal, uh, postmodern plural, pluralism. He can't be assuming any of those things because, listen, none of those things will bring persecution. Friends, when we are transformed by the gospel, captivated by Christ, He becomes our master. He's our king. He, he's not our buddy. Christianity's not our hobby. He is our king. When we trust Christ, we die with him and we rise with him. We have a new life and he owns it. We are not our own. And so the gospel and true conversion is what causes persecution, it transforms us. It's the message that we must share. And the gospel is also at the same time the thing that brings us his abiding, never failing, always with us presence. Now, before we move on, I said I had a couple pastoral angles here. That's one pastoral angle just to show you, I think, what is implied there is openly identifying as a, as a believer and as a, following, a follower of Jesus. Here's the other pastoral angle that I think we have to talk about then because having heard me say that, that persecution is inevitable, there's probably a few people in the room that are saying, well, what's that say about me then? If, I, if I'm not being persecuted for my faith right now, does that mean I'm not being bold enough? If I'm not being persecuted for my faith right now, and you're saying that Jesus says it's inevitable if they follow him, does that mean I'm I'm not identifying with him enough? Does that mean I'm not a big enough target for Satan to go after? Has anybody ever wondered that? I've wondered that. I've heard those thoughts from others. I've thought the exact same thing. So, So does it mean one of those things if you're not being persecuted? Here's my brilliant answer. I don't know. I don't know. It would be pastoral malpractice for me to say to you, if you're not facing persecution, it's because you're not being obedient to Jesus. I can't say that. I don't know. Because sometimes God's hand of grace to us looks like calm waters and smooth sailing. At other times, it looks like rough patchy, uh, rough patches and, 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 and rocky waves. So he, he has that for us at different seasons and at different times. So I, I dare not speak on his behalf for that. And, so, and just to say a blanket statement for all of you in the room that I don't know. Yeah, if you're not facing persecution, it's because you're being disobedient. I think that's a mistake. However, I also think the opposite's a mistake. Yeah, however you're living right now is perfect. Just keep it up. I can't say that either because you may be sidestepping persecution because nobody knows you're a Christian. That may be the case. You may be sidestepping any pressure in your life because you're actually not taking a bold stand for truth and for what the Bible teaches. That may be the case. I don't know. You may be holding the message back and keeping the light under a basket. I had a pastor one time tell me or ask me, say, if, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> and so we're talking about, it. do people know? Is it, is it out there? Is it part of, your, uh, of, of who you are and who, how you identify and what your message is? So again, you may need an encouragement to boldness, to risk, to danger for the sake of the gospel. And, and listen, just to, to unpack all of this, we're not gonna solve all of this right now, but my encouragement to you is to, is to pray and to dialogue and to reflect with your, your elders and uh, missional community group leaders and others in your life. And just to do business with that. And to think, man, it, yeah, it, am, I, am I sidestepping this just because I'm being bold, but the Lord just has that grace for me right now? Or am I sidestepping this because I'm, I'm kind of holding back? Again, I'm, I'm not, not offering an answer there, but I am encouraging the conversation. Maybe even over lunch today to talk with people about that and to, to, to pray for one another and lift one another up uh, here at Pillar Church. Third question. So we had, what does persecution look like? We've had, why is there persecution? Finally, what should we do in the face of persecution? If we were to read this entire passage, if we would just read this again and kind of skim it, and you were having a highlighter or a pen, and you were just going to mark all the commands, all the instructions, again, if we're, we're gonna, what, what should we do then? Um, you would see a number of things. You would see 11 or 12 things, I think. Be wise, be innocent, beware, don't be anxious, flee to the next town, have no fear, do not fear, fear not, fear God, say in the light, proclaim. Right, I, I, th- I think those would be the things you see. But if we could categorize those into a couple little boxes, I, I think we would have three things. Be wise, be unafraid, be missional. Be wise, be unafraid, be missional. First, be wise. Look at verse 16 again. It says, be, be, be uh, uh, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. If they were just as innocent as doves, they would be naive or ignorant or easily taken advantage of. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. But if they were just shrewd like a serpent, they they could be given to even evil themselves. So Jesus commands a, a balance. In a word, Jesus is commanding them to be street smart, to be prudent, and not doing anything foolishly. And this then is why he says in verse 17, beware of men, so, so, no, don't go looking for a fight. Don't seek out persecution. Beware of those who could seek to do you harm. And if you look at verse 23, keep moving. If you're, if you're getting persecuted, you don't have to stand there and keep taking more of it. Go preach somewhere else. Be wise. So, for example, uh, if, if, if someone has a job in sales, for instance, I'm not saying that they need to feel bad that every sales meeting doesn't result in a, in a gospel presentation. If someone, if you lead a staff meeting as a part of your job, and I'm not saying that every staff meeting needs to start with a devotional from Scripture to begin each meeting. If you're a teacher, I'm not saying that you must use your classroom as a pulpit if you've been asked not to do so. You're called to identify with Christ and to be a witness uh, for Him, and you don't have to do it in the way that's going to get you fired. Get lunches with coworkers. Work your testimony into side conversations. I, whenever my wife and I were in grad school in, in Texas, we were uh, substitute teachers. And I would often do this. I, uh, they told us in the school district, you can't teach the Bible. You can't do this, which is shocking for Texas. I thought they'd be okay with it. Uh, but you couldn't do that. And so I would, I would just, I would leave my, I would take my Bible and I would, while the students were doing their work, I would leave it out. I'd read it. I would just leave it open on my desk all the time and wait for somebody to say, Hey, what are you reading? Oh, you're asking me? Sure, great, let me tell you. Or, or I, you know, the students are talking about a party they're going off to and they're like, man, when I was in high school, I'd be all over that. Something radically changed in my life and now I'm just a different person. I'll just leave it there, just set the bait out. And they'd say, well, what happened? Oh, wait, are you asking me for my testimony? Sure, I'll tell you my testimony. And so you, you can do things. You don't have to do things in the way that is going to get you fired, uh, but but be wise. Many of you are often find yourselves in stressful situations seasons whether that's a stressful season of parenting whether it's a stressful season in marriage whether it's a stressful deployment and just stressful things at, at, at work or you find yourselves in those things and just mentioning to, to people around you that the thing that gets you through those stressful moments is your trust and your relationship with Jesus and to use that to launch you into conversations so be wise or you may decide to push the limits a little bit knowing it may cost you that's okay too be smart be aware, don't be silent, be wise. Number two, be unafraid. Persecution is a reality, but the overwhelming message of this passage is not one of timidity, it's not one of fear, it's one of confidence, isn't it? It's one of confidence. There are a number of reminders here to not be afraid. The reason the Christian is to be unafraid in the face of persecution is that God is with you and he loves you. Look at verse 19. Even if you're dragged before rulers and authorities, even if you're interrogated, don't be nervous. God will give you the words to speak. The Spirit of God will speak through you. If your identification with Christ gets you in a position where you might face pushback, face pressure for your faith, you can walk into that conversation, into that situation, knowing that God is with you and that the Spirit will speak through you. Jesus promises that here. You can have all confidence in him. So you don't have to rehearse a speech. You don't have to have some sweet kind of rhetorical dodging skills. Pray that God would impress upon your heart and your mind what would be the most helpful, most wise, and most glorifying to him in that conversation. And he says it again down in verse 26. So have no fear of them. In verse 28, if you look at verse 28 again, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. I don't know if you noticed it there, but I think one of the most beautiful things in this passage is that there is a Trinitarian protection and care that's mentioned in this passage. Did you catch that? Look at verse 29. God the Father knows you intimately and values you immensely. More valuable than sparrows were his children. Verse 16, God the Son sends and identifies, verse 24, and acknowledges us before the Father, verse 32, as we acknowledge him before people. God the Spirit is with us, comforting us, counseling us, giving us words to speak. Verse 20. So do you face pressure or pushback or persecution for your faith? Rather than fear, picture the loving, never-failing presence of the triune God in your corner, on your side. That's a beautiful part of this passage. Here's our final point where we'll, where we'll end is, is third, be missional. To be wise, be unafraid, be missional. I, I think you see this primarily in two places in this text first it's implied in verse 23 when you flee when they persecute you in one town flee to the next and that's presumably not to hide but to continue preaching right when they persecute you in one town flee to the next continue preaching the gospel in the next town persecution leads to church planting i told you already the church that we planted is now two churches persecution leads to church planting so stay on mission keep going keep going keep going you don't have forever evangelism is a once and an eternity opportunity that we have here in this lifetime. Church planting is a once and an eternity opportunity that we have here in this lifetime. Keep going. Keep heralding the message. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep calling people to repent. Go. And friends, I say that regardless of what military culture looks like, regardless of what Okinawan culture looks like, regardless of what Japanese culture looks like, regardless of what uh, Chinese culture looks like. This is still true. Stay on mission. Stay on message. Be wise, but be bold and keep going. God is bigger than the roadblocks that are in any given culture. God is much bigger than that. So trust him trust him that people would be converted trust that we'd have testimonies and have more baptisms and and more people join in the church as, as you'll have people stand up here this morning joining the church and more people that will stand and say listen the god god overrode all of that i don't know how he did it but he's a god of the miraculous and he did it and trust him for that as you see in verse 27 instead of fear which would lead to silence jesus says to take the things i've told you and proclaim them keep preaching So friends, I don't know what pressure you might be facing now or some unknown pressure that might come your way in the future and God is giving you this text today to prepare you for that day. So even if today you're like, "Eh, I'm not really feeling this right now, he may be preparing you for something to come and he's giving you this passage now. So be wise, be smart, be unafraid, be missional, keep on mission, keep on message and then just do it all, all the way until the end. When you think of famous martyrdom stories and persecution stories of Christians around the world, you see the beauty of the one who endures. That's why verse 22 says that. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 32 says that those who acknowledge Christ will be acknowledged by Christ. But don't get that backwards. It's not an endurance that saves you, right? If you endure suffering well, well, that earns you points with God, and the more points with God means Christ won't be ashamed of you, and you're finally saved. That's not what this means, Rather, it means that trials, persecutions, attacks will reveal who you really are. Fake Christians will do a lot of things, but they won't suffer. They'll go to church, they'll read the Bible, tell their spouse that they're a Christian. Fake Christians will do a lot of things, but they won't suffer. That's the role of endurance. We read Romans 5 earlier. That that heat that is put on us, it reveals character as we endure, and that character gives us hope. Why does it give us hope? Because it proves that we are who Jesus says we are. And that's what this is talking about. It doesn't save us. Those who endure to the end will be saved, not because it makes Christ love you, but because it reveals that your love for Christ is genuine. And that's as true of the apostles' persecution as it is for Christians in China or Japan or Turkey or Iraq. As it is of the difficulty that you face for Christ, Church, may we all face it with wisdom, without fear, and with a bold message that Jesus is indeed Lord and King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for for boldness, for wisdom. Even even it's so easy to say, "Be wise as servant, be innocent as doves," but it's much harder to know what that balance looks like in our lives. So God, would you give us conviction? Would you give us wisdom to do that? It's easy to say, be bold and stand for the gospel. It's much harder when the rubber meets the road and we're facing that persecution. God, would you steel our spines to stand with you and give witness to the resurrected Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.